How will this end? Yes, I did. Good morning. Um, it's sad for me that we're almost done. It's been a wonderful, wonderful summer, and I'm sure we'll say that a couple of times before it's over. I'm going to be on call next weekend, so I probably won't be with you, and then it'll be the last, the last session. So it's been a delightful experience. Um, I'm going to try to talk for a few minutes today about <clears throat> some of the options for resolving this mess. Someone said after a session a couple of weeks ago, came up afterwards and said, this is just a mess. And I said, yeah, that's about the best way to describe it. We're going to talk a little bit about the options that have been put forward for resolution and then leave Michael some time to talk about the concept of reconciliation and what national reconciliation might look like. I want to share a little um, parable um, that I discovered yesterday, I was reading uh, some in preparation and found an article written by an Israeli uh, academic who used to be a director of democratic studies at the University of Haifa in Israel, now is the director of Middle East studies at the University of Hull in the UK. Um, he wrote an article called Breaking the Israeli-Palestinian Deadlock, the Two-State Solution. Very insightful analysis of what he thinks has to be done in order to achieve peace and for there to be a two-state solution. But he starts his article <coughs> with this little um, parable. God is sitting with his loyal angels, Raphael, Michael, and Gabriel, and looking at creation. Michael points out an old farmer who plows the land with tired legs and hands and says, Dear God, this man is 70 years old. He's been working hard all his life in order to sustain his wife and his six children. They live meagerly. Maybe we should lend him a hand. God answers laconically, He's not ready yet. The following week, God is sitting with his loyal angels watching his creation. Michael, the stubborn angel, tries again. If you forgive me, dear Lord, please note this farmer. He's been working the field since 6 a.m. This is what he has done for more than 50 years. Maybe we can help him. God replies, he's not ready yet. The following week, Michael asks again, and God still refuses. Week after week, Michael tries on behalf of the farmer, and God declines. Until one day, God agrees to help. As the farmer returns home on his little horse and carriage, God wraps a heavy gold bar with simple cloth and throws it on the road. The carriage hits the gold bar, one of the wheels breaks, the farmer curses his bad luck, takes the wrapped gold bar and throws it away. Then he fixes the wheel and slowly makes his way back home. God says tiredly, I told you he wasn't ready yet. <laughs> I think for those of you who know the history of the Palestinian-Israeli peace process, perhaps you can see the point that the author is trying to make. And that is we've had this prolonged struggle with both sides saying to the other side, they're not ready yet, we don't have a partner for peace. And then someone comes along and offers a potential solution and the Palestinians say, no, no. And everyone says, see, they really weren't, weren't ready for peace, they really aren't open for peace. Uh, the assumption of the author and many is that they don't see the gold wrapped in this plain cloth. It's not presented to them well. Uh, they're not prepared for it because they've had their heads down working to survive for so long that it's not quite so obvious when a solution has been offered. And as we see from some of the solutions that have been offered, there's a lot of hidden agenda behind some of the proposals for peace that have been suggested. This author says that he believes going forward that three things have to happen for there to be a peaceful solution. Number one, an Israeli leader who is committed to bring peace to his people and is willing to pay the necessary price. Number two, 
a Palestinian leader who is committed to bring peace to his people and is willing to pay the necessary price. And number three, a shared belief by both leaders that the time is ripe for peace. By time is ripe, it is meant that both leaders believe that enough blood was shed, that they need to seize the moment because things might worsen for their people, and that they have the ability to lead their respective people to accept the peace agreement and to change reality for the better. And this Israeli author contends that so far in history, we have never had a moment when all of those three things occurred at the same time. So when we talk about options for resolution, we're basically talking about a cessation of the conflict. We're not talking about shalom or salam, this greater sense of living together as equals, as brothers and sisters, as, as um, descendants of a common heritage. We're just talking about a way to stop killing each other. Four possibilities have been proposed with a, a bunch of variations. The two-state solution, the one-state solution, transfer or expulsion of one people or the other, and apartheid or occupation, which is what we have now. So when we talk about the two-state solution, we're talking about two independent sovereign nations existing side by side in peace. Um, and at this time, all reasonable parties are talking about the West Bank and Gaza, not about expansion of territory for either party. So as we talked about, the 1949 armistice line, which is now known as the 1967 Green Line, and the border around Gaza, these are the only internationally accepted borders although they are not accepted by the state of Israel. They've never declared their own borders. So what are the problems with the two-state solution? Even if, I think we need to recognize at the start that the two-state solution is still the international proposal. It's still what's supported by the United Nations. It's still what the United States supports, at least in, in theory. Uh, it's what the European, European Union supports. It's what most parties on both sides of the line still support, some version of a two-state solution. The problem, of course, is the settlements. You've, we've talked at length over the summer, there are over 600,000 Israelis living in the West Bank. Something has to happen with those settlers. They either become citizens of a Palestinian state or they evacuate. There has to be some resolution of the settler process. This is Harhoma. We've shown you these pictures before, Abu Ghanim. This is just south of Jerusalem, across the border toward Bethlehem. This is what it used to look like until they took all the trees off of it and turned it into an Israeli settlement. It's emblematic of what's going on in the West Bank with the settlements. So any two-state solution has to deal primarily with the problem of the settlements. Israel knows that. It's why in 1967, as soon as they conquered the land, they began to move settlers in to Kiryat Arba in Hebron, to Elon Moray around Nablus. Immediately after the, the war in 1967, the settlement project started because they knew that as soon as they could move people in, the facts on the ground would change, and that's what's happened. That's what President Bush described, the facts on the ground. We have to deal with the fact that there are now 600,000 Israelis living in the West Bank. Another problem with the two-state solution is the borders. As we mentioned, Israel does not have a constitution. They do not have declared borders. So we have to decide if there's going to be a Palestinian state, what will the borders be? Most people say we start with the 1949 armistice with 1967 and there's some sort of land swap. So you will see a lot of conversations about the, the trading land. It was on the table at Tabah at the um, peace conference that got so much uh, discussion. There are a variety of proposals, people talking around swapping land in the neighborhood of 3 to 5% of land. 
The problem that's not often discussed in the American media is that those conversations start with the assumption that Israel has sovereignty over greater Jerusalem. So when you read about these discussions of a two-state solution with a land swap, Israel is not willing to put on the table at all the conversation about the 300,000 settlers who live outside of Jerusalem. They start with the assumption that's off the table. We're now going to talk about the other major settlement blocks. Uh, the Gush Etzion settlement block, the Ariel, there are other big settlement blocks. They're not even talking about Ma'alea Dumim and all the big settlements around Jerusalem. So when the Palestinians say that's a non-starter, don't assume that they're coming to the table saying we're not willing to talk about peace. What they're saying is everything's on the table. The five final status solutions have to, uh, final status issues have to be on the table. But Israel starts the conversation about land swaps with the assumption that Greater Jerusalem is now sovereign Israeli territory and will not be negotiated. That's a non-starter in a peace talk to say that there are things that we simply won't talk about. So we've got legitimate Israeli security concerns. What happens if the Palestinians take control of all this? What about the border along the Jordan River? Palestine is divided. How do you connect Gaza with the West Bank? All sorts of proposals about building a corridor through here, uh, a, a highway that's blocked off, that's, that's controlled so Palestinians can go from one place to the other without entering Israel so that Israelis cannot get onto that road. But again, that's, a, that's a, a significant problem to think about how to connect Gaza and the West Bank. And then the idea of the borders. Do we use the 1967 border or has the wall become the de facto border? It's what Palestinians have been fearful of from the very beginning, that this wall that we've talked about was not just for security, it was a land grab. And now Israel is proposing that this wall be considered as the starting point for negotiations about the borders, rather than the 1967 Green Line, the internationally accepted border, they're saying, oh, we've got this barrier now, let's start there in terms of negotiations. That's a problem. Other problems with the two-state solution. We've talked at length about water. If Palestine becomes sovereign over the West Bank, then they will own most of the water. Who uses most of the water? Israel. We went through that in, in great detail. But most of the underground aquifers are under the West Bank. Most of the catchment area of the rainwater is in the West Bank. Most of the access to the Jordan River is in the West Bank. So under international law, Palestine would own most of the water. But Israel uses most of the water. And they have no intention of ever giving up sovereignty over the water resources because of the way that they use water. So what do you do? How do you negotiate that when you start talking about a two-state solution? What about Jerusalem? Last week we talked about Jerusalem. It's a very complicated map, but just to remind you, this is the Green Line, the internationally accepted border after the 1949 armistice. In red is what Israel has proclaimed as Greater Jerusalem, the municipality of Jerusalem. And then you have the barrier, the border that's been, been built, the wall. So as you can see, in, in blue are all of the Israeli settlements, what Israel calls neighborhoods, but under international law are colonies or settlements. And then you have in tan the Palestinian neighborhoods of East Jerusalem. So the, greater, the, the, the border of Greater Jerusalem extends around to try to bring as many of these blue settlements into Jerusalem and exclude as much as possible 
the Palestinian villages. So if you have a two-state solution, under international law, each state gets to determine its capital. So Israel will, of course, declare Jerusalem as their capital, as they've already done, even though no one in the international community recognizes that. The Palestinians will declare East Jerusalem as their capital. What do you do? Because Israel has already said Jerusalem is the eternal, indivisible capital of the state of Israel. It will never again be divided. And the Palestinians have said, no, there will be no peace conversation without Jerusalem on the table as the capital of our, of our country. So it's a huge problem to deal with, with respect to a two-state solution. One-state solution. Michael called it Israel-Palestine. <laughs> it's a really neat emergence of the, of the maps, the Israeli map of Palestinian <laughs> colors. Flag. flag, flag, I'm sorry, flag. So what does it look like? What does it look like to say that we're going to have one state one democracy, a multi-ethnic democracy where everybody has one vote. Isn't that what the United States ought to be demanding? Right? It's what we demanded of Iraq. We went into Iraq and took out their government and we said there will be a multi-ethnic democracy in Iraq. Shiites, Sunnis, Kurds, everyone has a place at the table. Everyone has to be elected to the parliament. It has to be a multi-ethnic democracy. We did not allow Iraq to become a Sunni nation or a Shia nation or a Kurdish nation. We, the external military, demanded of them that they be a multi-ethnic democracy. But we don't demand that of the state of Israel. So if it wasn't a multi-ethnic democracy, a one-state solution means Israel annexes the West Bank and Gaza the way they've done the Golan Heights. And everyone there has human rights. Everyone gets a vote. Makes sense. The problem, of course, as we talked about are the demographics. Right, right now, if you include all of the Palestinians in Israel, the 20% of the Israelis who are Palestinian, include all the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Palestinians in Gaza, we're sitting right at 50-50 in terms of the population. Some would say 51-49 in favor of the Palestinians. But if you look at the birth rates, Palestinian birth rate is higher than the average birth rate of Israelis. So either now or within the next decade, there will be more Palestinians within historic Palestine than there are Jewish Israelis. So, one state solution, everyone has human rights, everyone has political rights, everyone gets to vote, that means the end of the state of Israel. It's no longer a Jewish state. You can't have a Jewish state where the Jewish minority rules a non-Jewish majority. Certainly, the United States and the United Nations and Europe would not tolerate that. And, and just to say, don't, don't necessarily hear the end of the state of Israel as the death of the Jewish people. No. Just like when South Africa, they finally decided to give everyone the right to vote. You know, they had apartheid since 1948. They had the right to vote in 94. Go to the polls, what happens? The Black Party, ANC, African National Congress, comes to power. They didn't then go and kill every white person in, this, in the country of South Africa. Same thing in Northern Ireland. They're debating on, is this going to be part of the United Kingdom? Is it going to be part of Ireland? And now they're in a place of saying, well, whenever, when the majority of the people vote on whether or not it is Ireland or the UK, we'll make that decision. In the meantime, people aren't just trying to wipe out the other side. So it's not, it's not a given that to say, you give Palestinians the right to vote, they will then just annihilate the Jews and set up a Palestinian state. But it is fair to say that it is unlikely that a Palestinian non-Jewish population would vote to exist and have a state that is expressly uh, Jewish and therefore uh, is to their kind of their detriment, that it doesn't give them the same rights, you know, uh, within that same state. 
Hopefully that makes sense. Very, very well point, uh, stated. Because we often are, are careful about using the language of Israel as opposed to, to the Jews. But Israel often merges those. And so in the United States, that often happens. If you're opposed to Israeli policies, you're considered to be anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. So when I talk about the end of the state of Israel, I'm not talking, as Michael says, about the end of the Jewish people by any means, but the end of a state whose identity is a Jewish state that simply can't be if the majority of the population are non-Jewish. So that's, that's the concern about a one-state solution. What seems to be the most just solution now, because of the settlements, is for Israel just to incorporate all the territory, annex it, and let everyone be a voting citizen. It just makes sense. The problem, of course, is you have a Jewish minority ruling a Palestinian majority. And then the other concern is, what about the refugees and all of this? What happens to the refugees? If the refugees come home, the tables are turned completely. So the refugees are a whole other story. So can a state be truly democratic and Jewish? And this is, a, this is a conversation that is being hotly debated in Israel right now on multiple levels. Israel right now is on a path, they acknowledge, I'm not saying this is an outsider, they acknowledge toward losing their Jewishness or losing their democratic ideals because they cannot be both when they have a majority that was once a minority. So as the minority population, the Palestinians become the majority, Israel can either not be Jewish or not be democratic. They cannot be both. And, and they recognize that. Yeah, and so here again, this is not to say that it is, that the ideas of Judaism and the ideas of democracy are incompatible, right? right? It's not saying you can either be a Jewish person or a democratic person. Right. That's not what we're saying. It's just to say you can't have a democratic state and have a Jew, an ethnically exclusive Jewish state when 20% or more of your population are not Jewish, right? Does that make sense, everyone with us? So we're not saying that to be a Jew, you cannot be in favor of democracy. That's not what we're saying. I get very uh, you know, nervous about these things because we've had some of these kind of accusations come. So I want to just be very clear Good. about what we're saying. Why can't you use the word Zionist? Or Could. We I mean, could, but absolutely. Israel calls itself the Jewish it, state. Yeah, and I think the very, very uh, important question, why not just use the word Zionist as opposed to Jewish state? And this is the challenge that I have as I travel there and work with Palestinians and Israelis that these distinctions are clear often to us, but the state of Israel has chosen to link Jewish, Zionist, and Israeli as if they're synonymous. So that for us to try to be precise about that language makes it very difficult to talk to Israelis who want to blur those together. And that's how they get away with calling someone like me who is anti-Zionist an anti-Semite. I've had that label applied to me in public in, in, in Knoxville, in the, in the Knoxville News Sentinel a few years ago. I had a, a Jewish rabbi wrote in an editorial and called me an anti-Semitic because I questioned the, the wall and the validity of the wall as a means to peace. Because in her mind, if you're opposed to the policies of the state of Israel, you're anti-Semitic. Because they've blended those together, Zionist, Jewish, and Israeli all get mixed together. I'm going to watch the clock because I want to leave Michael time for what he's going to do. So then what happens if you have a one-state solution? How are the minorities protected? If the Palestinians are the minorities for a time, how are their rights protected? Once they become the majority, how then do you protect the minority rights of, of the Jews? And I'll, last thing, it'll take me 10 seconds to say, Tony Campolo, who's a really famous Christian author you may have heard of, he has a great quote that says, a democracy is not a state in which uh, the majority rules. A true democracy is a state in which it's safe to be in the minority. 
which I think is a very helpful way of framing democracy. So that's the question here. How will the minorities be protected, whether those be Jews or whether they be Palestinians? And that's, that's this point about safety. So what happens if it becomes a one-state solution? What happens if there is a Palestinian majority? Will Jews be safe without their own independent state? Will the Palestinians be safe? They're not safe now. Would they be safe under a different arrangement? I have a colleague who's a um, dean of, a, of one of the medical schools in Israel. He's a Canadian uh, Jewish physician who immigrated many years ago to Israel, now an Israeli citizen. And he told me a number of years ago, he said, David, we have given up hope that Western liberal democracies will protect the Jewish people. We no longer are willing to rely on the Western liberal democracies to protect the Jewish people. We must have our own nation. We must have nuclear weapons. We must have a, the fourth largest military in the world. We must fight for ourselves. That's the mentality that says the only way we will be safe is with the Jewish state. Of course, the problem with that is there's going to be a Palestinian majority within historic Palestine. And so something's got to give. So moving on quickly, transfer or expulsion. This is annexation by Israel of the West Bank and Gaza and expulsion of 4.4 million Palestinians from Gaza and the West Bank, possibly including the almost 2 million Palestinians who live in Israel. What are the challenges to that? I mean, where do you even start? Where do you even start? And on the converse side, departure or expulsion of all the Jewish Israelis and creation of an Arab-Palestinian state. This is not a straw man that I put up here to make a point. There are members of the Israeli Knesset still advocating for this. As recently as last year, a member of the Israeli Knesset advocated that the next war in Gaza should start with an announcement to all inhabitants of Gaza that we're going to bomb Gaza within 48 hours. You need to leave because we're going to come in and wipe out anything related to military structure and we will take out any civilians who have not left. You've been given fair warning, cross the border into Egypt, we're gonna devastate Gaza. Well, they who can't cross. Who was that? It was one of the MKs in Israel, I don't know his name. Um, the next step is to say the same thing of the West Bank, right? To say, okay, if we're gonna get rid of suicide bombers in the West Bank, let's just go in. But the problem is they can't leave. The border to Egypt is closed. It's not like Egypt is gonna accept these 1.65 million Palestinians. It's not going to happen. That's not a solution. It wasn't a solution for carpet bombing in, in World War II. In my view, it wasn't a solution for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's not a solution in Iraq. It's not a solution to go in and wipe out a civilian population because of militants that live among them. And so it's certainly not if you're wanting to take the land to eventually live in to, to just destroy to it, just bombing yeah. the infrastructure in the land. That doesn't make the land livable. So these, and they're still, of course, as you know, Hamas still takes the position that they want all of the Israelis out of, of historic Palestine. So I say this because we all know this story. Everybody knows about Hamas. We all know the problems about Hamas. But I want you to know there are equal voices in Israel advocating exactly the same thing, the expulsion or annihilation of the Palestinian people. This is not a Hamas problem. This is a radical right-wing fundamentalist problem that exists among the Israelis as well as among the Palestinians. And then finally we have what we have now, the establishment of occupation or apartheid. Maintain the status quo, continue to control the Palestinian population, maintain separate systems of justice, access, and civil rights. You can't see this very well from where you are, but this is a, a map of the road system with, in yellow, all the roads that are accessible to Israelis, 
as well as the roads in the West Bank in white that are accessible to Israelis, and in red are the roads in the West Bank that are inaccessible to Palestinians, and the yellow Israeli license plates and the white Israeli uh, Palestinian license plates. So occupation or apartheid means maintain the status quo. Last couple of slides. November 1973, the United Nations General Assembly um, opened for signature and ratification the International Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid. This is how the UN defined apartheid. Inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. And then the International Criminal Court from Rome said, apartheid, the crime of apartheid is inhumane acts of a character similar to other crimes against humanity, committed in the context of an institutionalized regi regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups, and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. It lists such crimes as murder, enslavement, deprivation of physical liberty, forced relocation, sexual violence, and collective persecution. Everyone now in the international community just about is willing to acknowledge that on some level what's happening to the Palestinians is apartheid. Even many Israelis are acknowledging this. And Michael will probably tell you his story about from um, Desmond Tutu's daughter, but I'll leave that for you in just a second. I'm going to do this last slide and I'm going to turn it over to you. So apartheid or occupation is the institutionalization or finalization of the current status confining the Palestinians to these islands or Bantustans surrounded by walls and fences and continuing the Israeli policies and just waiting out the, um, the end of this uh, problem in some way. So the problems are peace, of course. Will the Palestinians con uh, continue to do this? The answer is no, obviously. They're going to continue to resist as is their international legal right to resist military occupation by any means accessible to them. That's their international right. Will more wars break out with other nations? Eventually, yes. The Arab world has offered peace to Israel if they'll solve the Palestinian problem. Uh, barring that, uh, there will continue to be violence in the Middle East. And then what about the refugees? So one of my... Uh, uh, and the whole issue of world opinion. One of my colleagues who's an Israeli physician who is one of the leaders of uh, Physicians for Human Rights in Israel, I was talking with him at a conference in the West Bank a few years ago, asked him what he saw for the future, what was his reasons did he have to be hopeful. And we were sitting there in a big conference room with a group of Israeli physicians who had violated Israeli law and come into the West Bank to teach. It's against law for Israeli citizens to go into Area A into the Palestinian city. So they had come in illegally, but without harassment. They're physicians uh, uh, with human rights. So in a big conference room, we were breaking bread and eating together with the Palestinian physicians uh, in this conference. And so he looked out over that room. He said, this is what gives me hope. The fact that we are finding ways to sit together, to break bread, to share our stories, to work together. But, he said, this is not the solution. This is not going to solve the crisis. He said, 50 years, 100 years from now, this will not exist, meaning Israel. He said, the state of Israel has sealed its fate by occupying the West Bank. He said, something different will emerge within 100 years. The international community will not stand for apartheid. It will not stand for a minority uh, controlling a majority population. He said, we've sealed our fate, but there will be continued bloodshed. He said, that's the only currency that both of our sides know. So the next 50 years, we'll continue to see bloodshed until eventually the international community says enough is enough, and they will force a resolution. 
Um, now that's a perspective of a, of a senior Israeli human rights activist who just says, we're not going to solve this internally. We don't have the willpower, nor do the Palestinians. I'll turn it over to Michael there. Um, yeah, regarding apartheid, I would say that, uh, you know, we're thinking of apartheid. Of course, the word itself comes from South Africa. It's an Afrikaans word that means separateness. Literally, that's what it means. So it's about having systems of separation. Um, so you can think of Jim Crow in the South. That is apartheid. Um, and, uh, and so that what Israel has is a system of separateness. So to some degree within Israel itself, but primarily within the West Bank where Israeli citizens, settlers have different rights, are governed under different um, judicial systems, use different roads, all that stuff than the Palestinians who live in the same land. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, one of Des, I, I don't remember if I mentioned it in here, but one of Desmond Tutu's daughters, uh, Naomi, who actually lives here in Nashville, um, for those who don't know Desmond Tutu, is Nobel Peace Prize uh, winner and was the chair of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Archbishop Emeritus of Cape Town uh, in South Africa. So he, uh, his daughter grew up as a black woman in apartheid South Africa. Um, in the middle of, right about 2005, I think 2006, she took her first trip uh, to Israel. And um, I had her come and speak to a class I was teaching at Riverbend Prison on reconciliation. And she just sort of wandered into reconciliation in South Africa, but she wandered into talking about Israel. And she mentioned this trip. And she said that within 48 hours, and she said I could quote her directly on this, she said, I realized that the South Africans were amateurs at apartheid compared to the Israelis. That's from Desmond Tutu's daughter who grew up her whole life in apartheid South Africa, and she said within 48 hours she saw the, the South Africans were amateurs at it compared to what Israel was doing. Oh, thank you. Um, additionally, in I think it's 2009, um, the government of South Africa decided to issue a, um, a survey, a report uh, of Israel to determine whether or not the report was titled, Is Israel an Apartheid State? So they wanted to go and look very uh, in depth at the policies of Israel against the Palestinians, both within Israel and within the West Bank and Gaza, and to see whether or not they thought it was an apartheid state. They issued a 300-page report, um, and their finding was that they concluded Israel was both an apartheid and a colonial state by the government of South Africa, which is very interesting. Um, so, just to say, it, this isn't just a, a McRae theory. <laughs> uh, this isn't an anti-Semitic theory. This is being able to look at something and call it what it is. In the same way um, that, uh, I mean, one time when I was talking about this, someone asked me when I was talking about apartheid, they said, um, tell me again why you hate Jewish people. <laughs> because I was talking about a system that Israel, who calls itself a Jewish state, what had put into place. I didn't have the response at the time, but what I'd like to do now is be able to say to someone who asked me that question of, were you against apartheid in South Africa? And were you against Jim Crow in the United States? And let's hope to goodness they say yes. If they say no, we're having a different conversation. Um, but if they say yes, of course I was against denying black people the same rights as white people. In which case, then I could say, well, then why do you hate white people? What is it about white people you find so disgusting that you would not support their policy of denying blacks the same rights? It's an absurd thing. It's absurd. And it's equally absurd to say that if you're not okay with apartheid against Palestinians, you must hate Jewish people. That assumes that it is inherent in Judaism to c commit this kind of separateness and discrimination. And I would argue that that is not inherent in Jewishness. Except that you have the history of annihilation for Jews that you don't have for white people. Yes, but I don't know that, I don't know that a history of annihilation 
in turn justifies no. separating but, but a group of people. But, but that, that's the, that's, there that's are different the histories. That apartheid in South Africa, which started at almost exactly the same time as 1948, Israel, same, same year. lasted yep. about 48 years, and this is lasting much longer. Yeah, yeah, because there's a different sympathy that people right. have for the Jewish people than they do for white. Correct, absolutely. But that, the converse, I guess, would say, but that doesn't mean that this needs to continue. Right. Right. But, that, but that's, that's they are why, different but that's cases. Why correct. Can can say, well, I don't hate white people and support that. Yeah. But it's seen differently. Yeah. For Jews. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so what I want to <clears throat> talk about just briefly then is the concept of reconciliation. Hopefully I can do this in about eight minutes. Um, so when we're talking about how to build peace in Israel and Palestine, what we've done so far is look at what are the political solutions, but that won't in itself bring peace. That'll bring a political solution. Uh, and those are not synonymous. Uh, so there's some, there are two different terms often that are used in conflict resolution theory. One is called negative peace, which is essentially the cessation of violence. We're no longer killing each other, which is what we're talking about essentially with a political solution. We're trying to get to a place where we're no longer at war, we're no longer in conflict, we're no longer killing each other. Uh, but then there's also the notion of positive peace, which is about once you have that foundation of the cessation of violence, we can then start building justice and wholeness and health between the communities. So that's what we're talking about now. How do we get to positive peace? So what we need is people for the day after peace, as the saying goes. So when that political solution is signed, we need people for the day after that who are going to start taking it from paper onto the ground and implementing that. So once we've solved refugees and settlements and borders and Jerusalem and water, <laughs> once that happens, because that'll be easy, then we'll do the really hard work, um, which I would argue is harder than solving this, uh, which is how do we reconcile these, these peoples who have been at war since the early 1900s, essentially? How do we bring these people together? So um, when we're talking about reconciliation, the root itself, the, the etymological root of the word is, from, is Latin, and it means to call together again. So it's about bringing things into proximity that have not been in proximity, or at least bring them into a different kind of proximity. So three things I would suggest we need for reconciliation. Uh, oh, this is the next slide. I'm sorry. Um, this is a phrase from John Paul Lederach, who's a peace builder. He says that reconciliation about building improbable relationships. And arguably, to get Palestinians and Israelis to be friends is to build improbable relationships because they've been at odds for a very long time. So how do we build these improbable relationships? I, I would argue we need at least three things. One is proximity. Get people close that haven't been close which might mean tearing down a wall that separates them. Get them close, but proximity in and of itself is not sufficient. Most of the, for most of human history, wars have required proximity. <laughs> now we can fly drones from shacks in Las Vegas. Um, but that hasn't always been the case. You used to have to be right in front of someone with a sword in order to kill them. So proximity could also just get you within firing range. Right? So proximity in and of itself is not sufficient. You also then need curiosity. You need to want to know something different about the person than you know now to want to ask different kinds of questions. But that in and of itself isn't sufficient because you could get close enough to ask the right questions and then be able to say, okay, now I know exactly why I want to kill you. Right? I've heard just enough to know why I want to kill you. So then you also requires this concept of humility. And I'm not talking about the humility that allows certain presidential candidates to say that they're more humble than the Pope. Um, and I'm also not talking about the kind of humility that I encountered at Lipscomb. Uh, which was where I was mediating a conflict between two residents uh, and I asked one to go ahead and tell me his side of the story and the other to tell me his side of the story afterwards. So the first person starts and says, well, my problem with this guy is that he's so much holier than everybody else. He thinks he's so self-righteous. He's better than everybody else. And the second guy stops him in sentence and says, I'm sorry, I have to stop you. 
I know what you're saying is wrong because humility is my greatest spiritual gift. <laughs> True story. True story. It's not that kind of humility. <laughs> um, it's the humility that I would call Snoopy theology, which here's a little uh, comic strip from Snoopy. Charlie Brown says, I hear you're writing a book on theology. I hope you have a good title. Snoopy says, I have the perfect title. Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? I think that is the perfect title for a book on theology. I also think it's the perfect title for a manual on reconciliation. Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong, that all the things that you believed about the other person, all the stories you told yourself about them, all the questions that you answered for them, has it ever occurred to you that you might have been wrong? If that question can sit with you, we may be able to make progress. Dad always taught us growing up that a person is an idiot, <laughs> paraphrasing, if in the back of their mind they don't think when they're speaking that they could be wrong about what they're saying. Right? That's just not a wise way to walk through the world, to, to believe wholeheartedly all the time that you're right. So if we can get close, ask better questions, and keep in the back of our, our mind that we might be wrong about what we've believed, we might be able to get a step toward reconciliation. So uh, certain principles of reconciliation are things like confession, being able to tell the truth and acknowledge injustice, to repent, to literally change our course and walk a different direction, to have forgiveness and pursue new relationships, and to attempt to restore, uh, to make restitution for wrongs committed and seek justice. Um, another uh, uh, or not philosopher, but peace builder, talks about reconciliation as the meeting point of truth, mercy, justice, and peace, pulling from the Psalms. Um, so to think about it in those ways, it's a reconciliation is this, is this space that we can enter to where we have truth, mercy, justice, and peace. Or as the Corey community says, it's about learning to live together well. How do we do that? Um, so looking at just a few of uh, some national practices that might need to take place in Israel and Palestine, this is by no means exhaustive, and I could be wrong about some of these. These are just some of the things that I think would need to happen as a starting point. First, walls got to come down, or at least, at least move to whatever border is established. Right? But it's going to be very hard to actually reconcile, to get proximate and get curious and be humble if there is a wall, a 25-foot wall that is dividing you. That's very difficult to do. And it's the problem with a lot of the reconciliation initiatives that are happening now is that Israelis and Palestinians will go to neutral ground like the Negev Desert or they'll go to Sweden or they'll go to all these neutral spaces and they'll have these amazing encounters where they're like, wow, we've been able to get proximate, we've been able to get curious, and we've been able to get humble and hear each other's stories, but then they have to go back to the places where the conflict existed and now they're on opposite sides of the wall and they can't get close. It's very hard to sustain the reconciliation uh, when you base reconciliation on neutral spaces, which is not where the conflict took place to begin with. It was in very politi politicized and um, uh, tra traumatic spaces. So walls gotta come down, equal rights for everybody, that should be a no-brainer. Hopefully everybody in the room agrees that to have peace, you need to have equal rights for everybody. Proportional political representation, right? So that if Palestinians are the majority, if Israel Jews are the majority, they should also have uh, an, a proportionate amount of political representation. Make sure that everyone has a seat at the table for those conversations and decisions. There need to be economic improvements and structural reforms. Can't keep Palestinians living in poverty. Can't keep Ethiopian Jews living in poverty. <laughs> right? This is the same conversations that are happening in the U.S. Same thing ones in South Africa. Economic improvements, structural reforms. And then what I think is going to be really significant, personally, is a commemoration of suffering, loss, and injustice. In other words, telling the truth about what has happened. And what does that look like? One we could pull from South Africa, from Chile, from some of the other places that have done TRCs, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, have uh, listening forums for people to come and be able to tell their story about what has happened to them. 
um, to be able to have the perpetrators of violence be able to confess what, has happened, what they did, which some are doing now. There's a group called Breaking the Silence, which are Israeli soldiers who are confessing what they have done in the West Bank, who are trying to break the silence around the policies of Israel in the West Bank. You ought to look them up, Breaking the Silence. It's really powerful stuff. Um, I think monuments would be quite significant. I mean, monuments is a way of kind of physically commemorating uh, certain stories that we want to stay alive. So I think that, for instance, if, if a two-state solution, a Palestinian capital needs to have a, a monument to the victims of everyone who has died in a suicide bombing, right? To own that and say, there were people who lost their lives that shouldn't have lost their lives. And we want to acknowledge that suffering. I also then think there should be a monument in every single Palestinian town and village that was cleared during the Nakba. Remember what happened in 48? 750,000 Palestinians were driven out of their homes. I think there should be a monument in every single place where that happened. The same way that I think there should be a monument of every single place that people were lynched in the United States. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm having a really hard time hearing you. Yeah. Can all this happen? I don't know. I think sometimes, though, um, in order to be able to do peace building and reconciliation, you have to have some absurd ideals sometimes and some absurd yeah. hopes. You got to have something that's probably unreachable that you're working toward, and then you can find something that can work along the way. Um, I mean, if we're being really realistic, then there's a part of me that just wants to say, oh, this is never going to end, right? But that, we, can't, we can't take that position. I think hope sometimes requires some absurd uh, ideals sometimes. Yeah. So does the tiny country. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, whether or not this, can, this, this will work, I'm not sure. Um, but let me just, we're out of time. Let me just get through what, I, what I'm proposing could be helpful. These are things that I think could facilitate reconciliation. There are other things that could do it, and these may not ever happen, but these are some of the ideas that I'm working with. So com uh, physical commemorations of the suffering and death on both sides. I think that all Palestinian students should have to visit the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And I think there needs to be a museum established to Palestinian suffering, a Nakba museum that all Israeli students should have to visit. Then we have to share education. That is a big one. That's what they're dealing with in Northern Ireland. After the troubles have ended, 30 years of war, they're trying to figure out how do they get Catholics and Protestants into the same schools, and 15, 20 years out, they're still having a very hard time with it. That has to be done here. You have to, whoop, that came out of order. You have to first teach each other your languages. I think all Palestinians need to study Hebrew, and all Israelis have to study Arabic, because you will not reconcile if you can't even talk to each other, right? You have got to learn each other's languages. So, learn Hebrew, learn Arabic, integrate the school systems, try to find ways to have a shared sense of your historical narrative. Is there any places where we can, in our historical narrative where we can come to agree on what happened and why it happened? This potentially is the hardest thing of all of this, a shared historical narrative. My realism says that will never, ever happen. Um, but I think some of these other things could potentially happen. So this is just what I'm proposing would be some of the things, some of the ways that reconciliation might take form. Yep. Yep. But what really, in my limited understanding, pushed me to 
wish that to happen with international pressure sure. and sanctions. And if people in, in America don't even know that the Jews are doing this, and I'm saying this kind of inflammatorily, but I'm just saying if people are not even aware that this is actually occurring in Palestine, mm -hmm. there will not be pressure on the Jews to stop doing Well, and to say, yeah. To say there is significant international pressure. There's the BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions. It's the same approach that was taken to South Africa. That does happen. There are a lot of U.S. universities that have taken this policy. Um, it's so prevalent, in fact, that it was it the mayor of New York or the governor of New York who made it illegal, I think, to uh, boycott Israel? Made it a crime to boycott Israel? Um, that's how prevalent these movements are. Uh, so there is significant international pressure that's coming. And again, yeah, just to say that as we look at this and say this will never happen, it's exactly what people said about apartheid in South Africa. It'll never end. It's exactly what people said about Jim Crow in the United States. It's exactly what people said about the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Right? I mean, every empire, every system of discrimination, people have looked at it and said, it'll never end. It's way too permanent. It's way too complex. We've got no hope for this. And somehow, all of them ended. So I think we have to, we have to hold on to this sense of hope that maybe... Some way, somehow, we're going to be able to change this. And I think it's by sometimes setting goals that we may not be able to meet, but to say we've got to have some vision of what we're working toward. One quick comment. I know we're out of time. I need to let you go. I may have mis misheard, but I want to make sure we're, you hear us as being clear. The Jews are not doing this. This is the Israelis. It's very important that we are precise about our language. I don't want anybody to mistake what we're saying. This has nothing to do with Judaism. It has nothing to do with historic Judaism. This is the state of Israel. They have made claim themselves to be a Jewish state. But Jews, Judaism, is not supportive of this. There are some pockets of Jews in mm -hmm. Israel and the United States and other places, but the Jews are not doing this to the Arabs or to the Muslims or the Palestinians. The state of Israel is doing this. Very important that we're precise about that. We are out of time. We're happy to answer questions afterwards. Thank you all. We'll see you next week.